It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Well, thank you, Chuck, and welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro back here in the front row. I am your host. Behind the scenes, as always, is J.R. Quitman, our creator, producer, and director. Coming up today, this one's a good one. Bobby Valentine, you may know him as a time as a manager for the Mets and the Rangers, also played baseball, Major League Baseball, came up with the Dodgers, spent a lot of time with Tommy Lasorda. He shares those stories and so many other stories. He's got a book out right now, Valentine's Way, and we touch on some of those stories here this episode. So come along for the ride. This is a great one, folks. Bobby Valentine is our guest in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Well, Bobby, first of all, thanks so much for joining us here today and uh, a lot to get to with your life. As you said, we're going to touch on your book, Valentine's Way, uh, My Adventurous Life and Times, and it certainly has been for you. And uh, and again, uh, thanks so much for joining us here today. This is amazing. A lot to talk about. There's no doubt about that because uh, there's no baseball. There's a, we have to fill the void, and the only way of filling that void is with the past. That's right. We're going to talk about that. Let's start way past for you. And, and let's start growing up. Stanford, Connecticut, uh, born in 1950. Tell us about what life was like for you early on and, and where sports uh, were in your life at that point. Okay. Um, yeah, Stanford, Connecticut, great town, uh, great family, you know, great community, all that lucky stuff that some of us uh uh, get to have when we're growing up. Um, you know, I played at a baseball field where this, there was an old scoreboard and on the top of it, it said Stanford, Connecticut, baseball capital of the world. You know, I thought that was really cool. And I actually thought it was for a while growing up. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, it was paramount, you know, ba- baseball and football and track and basketball and ballroom dancing, all those athletic events um, kept me out of trouble, without a doubt. Got me, uh, you know, to understand competition, friendship, teamwork, all those things. And luckily, I had great coaches, not only great teammates, but great coaches. Well, you're talking about the sports, but let's go to ballroom dancing for a while, because I saw that in your bio, and I wasn't sure if it was correct or not. But, but how did that materialize, and how did that help you, you know, with your sports career? Well, you know, and, you know, Little League, it was at the park every day. And, uh, you know, then there's a little Pop Warner football. And then there were the activities that you get to run around. And, you know, I was pretty good at all that stuff. And my mom said, hey, you, you're not going to just be a, uh, an athlete. You're not only going to play sports. you got to have some culture in your life. So she said I had two chances, sing or dance. And I couldn't sing. So I decided to dance. Huh? And so I, you know, like at 12 years old, I started taking these lessons in the old firehouse ballroom, you know, where the gals were on one side and the guys on the other, and they show you a step and, and then you'd find a partner and you try to do the box step or the, or the cha-cha-cha or whatever the step of the day was. I happened to be pretty good at it. And by the time I was 13, the teacher said, hey, would you think about competition? And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And before we knew it, um, you know, we're at the Waldorf Astoria, the Edison Hotel. Finally, it took me, you know, when I was a, uh, about four years later, I, I wound up dancing at the Fountain Blue Hotel for an international dance championship, which I won. 
and also uh, danced the Viennese Waltz at the uh, opening of the New York Pavilion at the uh, New York World's Fair uh, back in 64. So it, it was really cool. And for whatever it's worth, if anyone's listening, it is an athletic event. And it checks all those boxes, you know, even contact if you're going there. But, you know, you have teamwork. You have rhythm. You have balance. You have precision where you need to do the step or you're paying for a new pair of shoes for your dance partner. <laughs> yeah, I can certainly see that. There's a lot of uh, correlations there, as you said, very athletic to, to do that. And uh, amazing that, again, that was part of your growing up with all the other sports that you were playing, as you said, baseball, football, track and field. You're a three-time All-State football player as well. And, and you know, was that one point was football, more your sport and, and what you were really excelling in at the time? Well, more people got to see me for sure. You know, we had thousands of people at football games and, you know, we had uh, tens and twenties at baseball games. So um, it, it was more glamorous for sure. Uh, but, you know, that was all kind of happenstance for me. I was lucky where they, they closed the junior high school in my hometown. So instead of being a ninth grader in junior high school, I was a ninth grader in high school because they put the ninth graders up in the high school and took the seventh and eighth graders and spread them around the city. And um, with that being said, I got to learn all the plays as a ninth grader. Uh, when the sophomore season started, which is at the beginning of the school's, school year, I already knew all the plays. So I got to start opening day and we had a state championship team and, you know, I scored four touchdowns the first game, and um, I guess the rest is history. Yeah. And with that, I mean, you were recruited as a, a dual-sport athlete, right? Both football and baseball. You were recruited by a number of schools, big-time schools as well. Yeah, and, and remember, uh, you know, Mike, that was 1968, 67 when I was being recruited. There wasn't a lot of scholarship money for baseball in those days. You know, Arizona State had a little. Um, Michigan said they had a little. University of Arizona had a little. But, you know, if I was going to get someone to pay the full $1,700 tuition fees <laughs> that my family couldn't afford, I had to get, have a football scholarship, and that's what I got at the University of Southern California. Yeah, so how does that work out? You go from Stanford, Connecticut to Southern California. That had to be a huge adjustment for you. Oh, I reckon it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and not only was it a huge, huge adjustment, you know, I went out as a junior and got recruited by John McKay for, uh, for USC, and I was traveling around looking at, I think I went to about 30 different universities, you know, one night stays, two night stays, uh, trying to figure out what the heck it was going on. You know, I'm the first guy in my family to go to uh, college. So there wasn't a lot of advice being given out on the, on the Sunday dinners, but uh, luckily my high school coaches were spectacular and they knew how to lead me in the right direction. And, and, when I finally got to be there as a student a year after I was there as a recruit, um, it was like a, a panic situation. I left minor league baseball. Yeah, well, let's get that straight so, so people put things in perspective. Yeah, because 1968, I think you were drafted by uh, the Dodgers, fifth overall, correct? So, so you never really played... I guess at USC. Is that, is that correct? Exactly. In those days, you know, you, if you're a pro in one sport, you were a pro in all sports. Um, you know, and the guy who changed that just for those trivia guys out there is Danny Ainge. You know, Danny Ainge was playing professional baseball when he 
uh, he, he challenged the rule with the Supreme Court and said, I want to go back to BYU and finish my basketball seasons. And uh, he did. And now you're only a pro in the sport that you're designated in. But at that time, you were shut down in all of them. Um, so I, I did uh, sign, interestingly enough, to, you know, our draft, which was going to be the big occurrence, you know, in, in the home t- my hometown, um, was the day after Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Wow. Uh, so the, the real talk around town was, oh, my gosh, another Kennedy. Oh, how do we live with this? Oh, yeah. And by the way, Bobby got drafted and I uh, left a couple days later for Ogden, Utah, played that minor league season and then got on a plane, flew to LAX, took the cab with my two suitcases from Los Angeles airport down to USC, paid the $9.20 cab ride or whatever it was. It was expensive. Um, and then went to check into the dorm that I had on my application papers. And when I went to check in, they said, oh, you're a scholarship player? I said, well, I used to be a scholarship player, but now I'm a professional. And the gal behind the desk said, that's great. You're not in this dorm. It's only for scholarship athletes. You're at Tooten Hall. And Tooten Hall, with the 95-degree weather, was all the way across the other side of campus. Actually, it was off campus. It was a foreign exchange student's dorm. Uh, and I carried my suitcases. I must have looked really cool. I think I had a leisure suit on that I sweat totally through in the 95-degree heat of L.A., you know. Thought I was going to be cool, and uh, I was anything but. And, and you get there, and your roommate. Tell us about your roommate at USC, because it was a guy that uh, eventually you guys would be teammates with down the road as well, right? Well, yeah, interestingly enough, uh, Billy Buckner was my teammate at uh in ogden where we had tommy lasorda as our manager in rookie ball and uh, he flew up to napa to drive down from napa in california to usc i didn't have a car yet he had bought a car quickly with his uh with his bonus money and uh we met up uh we were in different dorms uh, they were both horrible dorms. So the second day we were on campus, we went to the baseball coach, Justin Dato, actually the son of the baseball coach at the time. Rod Dato was the coach and said, what do we do? We need, we can't live in these places. I'm with a guy who doesn't speak English. And Billy said the same thing. And he said, well, why don't you just join a fraternity and live at the fraternity? And we said, oh, cool. How do we do that? And he said, well, they're rushing right now. Just go over to 28th Street where all the fraternities is, are and tell them you want to join. And that's what we did. Went to, the, went to the first house on the block. A bunch of guys are standing outside after lunch looking at all the girls going by. And we went up and said, hey, we'd like to join. And, and that brought out a roar from the crowd. Hey, these guys want to join. How about that, guys? You know, because you had to be rushed and pinned and and be a legacy a lot of times so uh you know they told us hey the the house across the street just got thrown off a campus they're they're renting some space why don't you go rent a room across the street so we wound up renting a room across the street going through hell hell week with the sigma guy fraternity and uh together billy buckner and i were then roommates there we later were roommates in AAA. We were later roommates in, in the major leagues. And, and uh, we had foot races 
every single day, whether we had sneakers on, we were in bare feet at the beach, we had our dress shoes on or our boots on, there, there was always a pole up in front and it was ready. It was, okay, ready, boom, and then we'd race, whatever, that 30 yards. Uh, and uh, he never did beat me, but he tried every <laughs> single day. And he was a fast runner, you know. Yeah, yeah. Again, you came up and, and you were a pinch runner early on in your career. We'll get to that in a second. But, you know, I want to mention, you know, you mentioned John McKay, Rod Dato, and then, you know, you, you were going to play for those guys. You didn't because you went pro ball. And then Tommy Lasorda <laughs> is your manager. I mean, that that's three pretty good uh, legendary coaches and managers there. What was it early on your impression on Tommy Lasorda? Well, he was just amazing from the first day I ever met him uh, to the time I gave his eulogy. You know, he he was the most amazing person I ever met in my life. And not only because he was a great after-dinner speaker, or a great batting practice pitcher, or a great team builder, or a great friend. It was because he understood life. He got it, and he and he lived it to to the fullest, you know, and and kind of changed the paradigm, you know. Luckily for us, we went to rookie ball, and my good friend Zach Manassian, who happened to be the clubhouse guy in 1968, who's still my friend today, a hundred years later, whose sons are both executives with different major league teams, one with San Francisco and one with um, uh, the. LA Angels and and another one works in baseball with the Atlanta Braves amazingly um but Zach Manassian who is the the clubhouse guy uh said to me like the first day he says you're not going to believe this manager that you have because he was there with them the the pr prior two years and uh, I, I didn't believe it he was he was amazing and first thing he said hey uh, I don't like you because you're Italian I like you because I'm Italian. And then he said, uh, you know, you are the first round choice. And I said, of course I am. I know that. Uh, what are my duties? Just tell me what you need me to do. And he said, well, the first thing you need to do, being you're the first round draft choice, is buy the manager a steak dinner. So <laughs> on the way from the airport, we stopped at a steakhouse and I bought him a steak dinner. <laughs> oh, that's great. Great story there. And you're only 18 at the time. Uh, again, and on this team, you look at this, uh, the Ogden Dodgers. You had Bill Buckner, you had you, you had Steve Garvey, you had Tommy Lasorda. I mean, could you see at that point that you guys were all going to eventually make it to the majors? Well, obviously, we believed that we would. Uh, you know, we, we didn't think the major leagues was uh, that big a deal. We were great baseball players, you know. And Tommy made us think that way. Matter of fact, Tommy had us write letters to the player who was playing the position at the major leagues at our position and say, hey, get ready to move over. We're on our way. And uh, that, that was also quite, the, uh, quite the, the thing. But remember, this was Tommy Lasorda as a young man. He, he was a scout and a, and a manager for two months a year, rookie ball. This is his third year at rookie ball. He was trying to get out of get out of that and move up the ladder. And, and as crazy as it is, he jumped from rookie ball to triple A, which uh, isn't done very often with managers. And, um, you know, he jumped over a lot of guys who were managing in A ball and double A, EM waiting in triple A. And my goodness, it's, um, 
it, it was quite the experience. Yeah, the Dodgers uh, certainly saw something in him, you know, to to have that elevation. And and you kind of moved along with them at times as well. In 1969, you went to AAA Spokane. Again, he was your manager there. And and then at 19 years old, you get called up, uh, a late season call up to the Dodgers. What was that like? Again, you're still very young in your career, and you're on the major league level at that point. Yeah, like I remember how crazy it was in those times. There was a, a thing called the Vietnam War going on. And there's also a thing in our country called the draft. And so when I signed my contract, there's a little clause that said that I would remain a full-time student in college, which would give me a draft deferment. So I had to get to school the first day of registration and sign my own check for the books and tuition, which made me a full-time student so that the season ended and we rushed to school. The season in AAA ended, we rushed to schools. It ended on September 1st. Registration was September 3rd. I got a call on September 1st from Al Campana saying they extended the 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 roster and billy buckner and i were both going to be on the 40-man roster when the dodgers were home come down to dodgers stadium which is right down the road from usc and we'll have a uniform for you so yeah so in the daytime i was a student in the evening nine different times because uh, there were nine home games i left usc and went down from my speech class to my batting practice at Dodger Stadium. It was pretty cool, but it was spinning really fast. So yeah. if you don't go to USC, your life maybe unfolds a little bit differently. Is that what you think? Again, oh, yeah. USC being there with the Dodgers, obviously it was a perfect fit. Yeah, it all worked perfectly, and, and there was no planning of that by anyone. Um, there was no coaxing to go to USC. As a matter of fact, I, I have a handwritten letter from – Walter O'Malley, the owner of uh, the Dodgers at the time, telling me that to go to the University of Penn and uh, get your education before you become a pro. Don't be silly and sign a pro contract. Uh, and that was before I was drafted by the Dodgers. Uh, <laughs> and his story changed afterwards, for sure. Yeah, there you go. He wanted to go to Penn, go to what? Wharton School of Business here, I guess. But uh, you, you went a different route, and it certainly worked out for you. And again, you get the call up. No at-bats, but you're a pinch runner. What was that experience like for you, you know, that late-season call-up back in 1969? Well, you know, we were sitting on the bench. We took batting practice with the extra men. Uh, and, uh, you know, we got to meet all the guys because we hadn't been in spring training. Uh, and, um, you know, I got, I got a call one night. Uh, hey, get ready. You might pinch run. So I went and found my hel helmet and – you know, did a few jumping jacks down in the uh, in, in in the runway, and sure enough, I'm in my first game uh, against the New York Mets, who later became the '69 Miracle Mets. Huh? Who in yeah. September, if they lost the game against the Dodgers, they probably wouldn't have made the the playoffs and won the National League East. And I had a chance to steal home plate where the Danny Ozark, the third base coach, with I believe. Uh, it was uh, Jerry Kuzman pitching and uh, a big windup, a left-hander. He said, hey, you could steal home on this guy. So I was there, and, and I was timing him as he wound up. And I wasn't going to steal on that pitch. I was going to steal on the next pitch. There's a line drive to, to left field. 
and uh, I had no chance to steal. So, and it was the third out of the inning. So anyway, um, kind of interesting the way all that worked out. Yeah. 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 We'll never know. I, I think you, you probably could have made it uh, home there. Uh, so 1970, then you go back to Triple A again with Lasorda, uh, Pacific Coast League champs there. And you're, you're the MVP. So obviously you took going back to AAA very well. What did you use that experience for? Because it worked out again with the MVP season for you. Well, Mike, you have to understand the first time I went up, I was 19 years old. I was supposed to go to a ball. Instead, there was an injury. I went to AAA. I stunk it up for the first two months that I was there. I had more errors than the entire team put together playing shortstop. I was a center fielder in rookie ball. Tommy was going to convert me to a shortstop because Maury Wills was much older than Willie Davis, and there was a better chance of me getting to the big leagues quicker if I was a shortstop than a center fielder. Uh, you know, and there were no trades in those days, and you're part of the part of the organization until they decided you uh, had to leave. So instead of planning my future in the minor leagues until Willie Davis uh, left the Dodgers, he. He kind of planned it for me to be a shortstop, but I was thinking, and during that first year in 69, the pitchers decided they didn't want to pitch when I was playing shortstop. Tommy had a a legendary clubhouse meeting where he told the guys to go and get my autograph because someday I'll be in the big leagues and they'll be at at home watching me on TV. And um, the next year I came back with confidence and as a 20 year old, yeah was the MVP of uh, of the league and um, was ready to get to the big leagues. And you did. You made the roster in 1971 with the, the Dodgers in spring training. Uh, what was it like to finally know, okay, you were there, and you were there for a couple of years, and, and this is your spot. You earned this spot. Uh, what was that like for you? Well, actually, it was brutal the first year because um, uh, I, I pulled out the idiot card uh, after I got to Arizona State where I transferred from USC because I had been – beamed with a pitch that pushed my cheapo down three and a half inches after being MVP, the last game of the playoffs. And they had to fix it, and the Dodgers had to see if I could uh, still play. So I went over, played in the Instructional League. And um, in the Instructional League, after the Instructional League, uh, I decided to play flag football for my fraternity football team. So my first year in the big leagues was a year with a Joe Namath-type a brace on my knee that was totally reconstructed. Uh, I couldn't play shortstop for about three months of that season. And my speed had diminished a little because I was running around with this heavy brace on my leg. And um, I kind of fell out of favor. Yeah, nowadays, I'm sure those contracts would not allow people to go play football with their, their fraternities, right? I don't know if I was allowed to play that. I told him I stepped on a sprinkler head because I read in the Mickey Mantle uh, autobiography that he stepped on a sprinkler head when he hurt his knee. So I tried that. They didn't fall for it. Yeah. So how do you uh, recap your, your your time with the Dodgers? 71 to 72, you're eventually traded then in 1972. Do you think it's, in your mind, a little bit more un- unfulfilled yeah, frustrating. Yeah, frustrating. It, it it didn't work out. I thought I'd get to the big leagues with Tommy. Tommy was still in the minor leagues. Uh, you know, the, the old regime was there. They wanted to keep the old uh, regime kind of players. Uh, you know, Billy Buck and I were just pinch hitting and 
spot starting, uh, you know, on day games after night games or when there was a tough pitcher pitching and the starting player didn't want to pit, play. So uh, it, it was something less than what I am. I always dreamed it to be. And, and eventually kind of with that, you get traded. You get traded to the California Angels. Among the people in that trade was Frank Robinson. As It's amazing just the different lives that you have been a part of and, and touched during your, your life and your career here. But was that a hard pill to swallow, getting traded for the first time like that? Well, it, it was expected, and I was hoping that it would happen, and I was hoping it would be a New York team. Uh, obviously, at the time, I was down playing winter ball with Tommy Lasorda, and um, – you know, we talked about it every day. What team need, would need me? What team would be cool? Because, you know, in those days, you really didn't know the other teams. You only got to read the sporting news once a week that came out on Saturday to figure out what all the other teams were. You knew about your team, but Tommy would read the sporting news and would know about every other team because he wanted to know about every player uh, that was available to, and would be available in the future. So, you know, he picked a few teams, and one teams he kept talking about was um, was, was the Angels because they traded Jim Fergosi uh, the year before for Nolan Ryan, and so Jim Fergosi was the shortstop, and Tommy kept saying, "Well, that's right down the road." And I know Harry Dalton, who became the new general manager, who came from Baltimore, and that's why he brought Frank down from the Dodgers in the same trade. So, you know, that all, oh, that whole circle worked. And um, it was cool. It was exciting. I was, I was stoked. I didn't have to move. I could stay in the same place I was living in. I knew where Anaheim Stadium was, and I could stick it up the butt of the Dodgers every day in the same newspaper, the same town. I, I really wanted to do that, you know? Yeah. But with that, though, you, you had a pretty, pretty bad injury, though, right? Uh, May 17th, yeah. 73, some compound fractures going for a ball in the outfield. Yeah, that uh, that was my idiot card again, you know. I, <laughs> I was the shortstop. I won the shortstop job. I was playing shortstop. I was leading the league and hitting all that stuff. I was doing everything, including being the teacher's pet. The new manager was a guy named Bobby Winkles, who is the first manager ever to go from the collegiate ranks to the major league ranks. And he went from Arizona State. Uh, up to the major leagues. He recruited me at Arizona State when I was in high school, so there was some familiarity. So I was his third-place hitter, and I was the teacher's pet. I did everything he wanted me to do. One of the things he wanted me to do on a certain day was play center field uh, because the center fielder had a bad uh, back, and I said, I could do that with my eyes closed. And uh, lo and behold, playing center field, Nolan Ryan breaks the losing streak when he's on the mound, throws his first no-hitter, and superstitious Bobby Winkle says, hey, let's keep this lineup going. We got a win winning streak soon, but you'll be at shortstop tomorrow. And tomorrow never came because I tried to catch a home run uh, and ran into a wall, broke my leg, and uh, got carried off the field. And, you know, the rest was uh, basically let's not you, – you're not ever going to be that player again. Um, let, let's think about other things, even though I thought I'd be the other player. But – Three or four years later, I realized I couldn't be. Well, the, the effort certainly was there. They didn't have the result that you wanted. And, and let's go back to Nolan Ryan for a second. As you said, you're in the outfield for a no-hitter, his first no-hitter, right? What, what's that like as a player being out there behind a pitcher who's having a great game, but a no-hitter, you know, are, are you worried? Are you, are you, you know, what, what's it like out there for you? Oh, as much as I remember, and of course things could be changed over the years, but I was standing there hoping the ball would be hit to me 
because if it was hit to me, it was going to be an out. And, uh, you know, that's the only way I was looking at it. This is me coming over from center field, making an easy catch, of course. I made a little diff more difficult catch, I think. Maybe that's Ken Berry with, uh, I think, the last out. He was the center fielder. He moved over to right field for that game. That was his first day back uh, with a back injury, and he was going to be in center field the next day. But, you know, early on, I remember being at second base uh, when I was playing shortstop. We were playing Detroit, and the great Al Kaline got to second base after walking and, and advancing on a wild pitch. And I went over and said, Al, how's he throwing? And uh, speaking of Nolan, who was pitching that day, and he says, well, if they don't make one of those two pitches illegal, he's going to throw a no-hitter. <laughs> and that's when I figured that his stuff – was that much different than all the other stuff that I was hitting against because, um, you know, I mean, there are good pitchers. There's Burt Blylevin and, you know, there, there, there's Ferguson Jenkins. And, I mean, there are good pitchers pitching them, but there weren't pitchers who every day out had a chance of um, throwing a no-hitter. There was one of them, and his name was uh, Nolan. Yeah, he was pretty dominant. You were actually his manager for a couple of those as well. We'll get to that a little bit later on, but – uh, again with the Angels, uh, and then you were traded Padres, Mets as well. And, and, and with the Mets, tell me about the, the Midnight Massacre trade because that goes down in history as a big one. Tom Seaver goes from the Mets to the Cincinnati Reds. And, you know, Seaver, obviously, as everybody knows, a, a great career he had with the Mets. What was it like being part of that trade? Yeah, so now we're at 1977. I'm with the Padres. I'm going to settle down. Buzzy Bavese, who was with the Dodgers, is now general manager of the Padres. Uh, San Diego's a beautiful place. I buy a house. I'm going to, you know, live there uh, until my my career ends. And on June 15th in the morning, I get a call saying, uh, congratulations, I know you always wanted to play in New York, you now have your chance. And uh, I said, what? He says, yeah, we just made a trade, and the Mets want you to meet them tomorrow night, um, which was really kind of one of those things where I said, oh, I'm going to the Yankees. That would be cool because they were the team I rooted for when I was young. Uh, but that wasn't the case. I went to the Yankees. Now, remember, I mentioned the sporting news and not knowing about everything else. Well, I knew that the Mets won the championship in 69 and, and the division in 73, and I knew the Mets were a good team. But I had no idea at the time about the turmoil in New York, about, you know, the, the, the Dick Young uh, um, ownership, uh, Tom Seaver, um, uh, Dave Kingman. And, and, you know, Kingman and Seaver both went to USC, interestingly enough, and they both spoke their mind interestingly enough. I guess we all took the same course there. Uh, and uh, they were just run out of town in a midnight massacre. And, and when I got there, I thought there'd be some excitement about a trade, but there was no excitement at all. The first day back in, at Chase Stadium, uh, you know, there were, there were booze. There were many fans, first off. Um, thousands, not tens of thousands. And all of them were angry and they were all booing and they were all you know, yelling at the people who are in the trade. And luckily I wasn't in the Cincinnati trade. Often I got confused and I would go, I wasn't in the Cincinnati trade. And that would kind of let me off the hook, even though it wasn't the Dave Kidman trade. And Dave was, you know, as good a player as they had other than Tom Seaver. So it was really kind of weird, really weird. <laughs> yeah. Tom Seaver certainly loved there with the, the Mets. And so, so you're there for a little bit, 1979, you get released, you go, 
back across the country to Seattle, right? And you made your debut as a catcher for the for the. How does that happen? You've been a shortstop, you've been a second baseman, an outfielder, and now you make a, a, a debut as a catcher. Well, that was one of those things. Two catchers got hurt, and Daryl Johnson, the manager, came down and said, "Hey, you've caught before, haven't you?" And I said, "Oh yeah." He says, well, you're the next guy up. And then the third catcher got hurt, and I got to go in the game. I had never put on the catcher's equipment before in my life. I warmed up a lot of pitchers because I felt that I could do anything I needed to do, but never put on the equipment and went in, caught five innings. And I guess I did a good enough job that I caught again before the year was over. But uh, that was really weird. So, so again, you're, you were catching there, and, and finally you retire in, in, at a, age of 29. I mean, obviously, young to retire. What, what went into that? What? You know, oh, let's get it straight. I wasn't retired. They retired me. I waited. Uh, you know, I waited for the phone to ring. The phone never rang, so then I retired. Yeah, I was hoping maybe one more year, but uh, I, I wasn't. I wasn't a very good player. My leg was crooked. I was limping around the field. I could get a hit once in a while, but um, you know, I wasn't really a useful player. How was it catching with all those injuries? Again, with the, the legs that, trying to catch that fly ball earlier in your career, you, you get the count, compound fractures. How was it catching? Did that hurt your career toward the end? Could you have had some more time if, if you didn't catch? Well, I don't know. Uh, maybe I probably could have had more time if I didn't take as many cortisone shots as I did. Um, you know, cortisone was a new thing back there in the 70s and for, but probably 75 through 79 if you say uh, every three weeks they were sticking a needle like this big into your ankle to kind of ease the pain because the, the leg healed, but it healed crooked. And so it put all the pressure on the ankle. And so the ankle bent less every day because of arthritis and probably because of the cortisone that was in there. So, um, you, you know, I, 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 I don't know that catching really did anything to retard my growth. <laughs> so as you said, you know, kind of forced retirement at age 29. You didn't want to retire. You still thought you could still play. What were you doing between then? In 1985, you get on the Mets coaching staff. So so what were you doing during that gap? And, and you know, was coaching and managing, did you think that was going to be the next progression with your career? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Before I went to the Mariners in 77 when I was with the Mets and uh, I, I had another operation where the, the doctor thought he could fix my ankle. And, and then when it healed, I went down to winter ball where Tommy Lasorda was uh, 76. Uh, Tommy Lasorda was uh, managing again. Uh, and uh, I said, hey, Tommy, you're the only one that I play great for. And you're the only one who knows how, how good I can be. Watch me play for a month and tell me what my skill level is. And after a month, he said, hey, by the way, your skill level is about that of a coach. Maybe you should start coaching. And uh, after we, you know, stopped crying and finished the beer and finished the pizza, um, we went back to the hotel. And I started thinking about coaching. In 81, I was a minor league coach with the Padres. In 82, I was a minor league coach with the Mets. In 83, I was a big league third base coach with the Mets under George Bamberger, if anybody remembers when he was uh, – uh, the manager, and then Frank Howard, and then Davey Johnson. And by, um, you know, nineteen mid-1985, uh, I had a few years of major league coaching uh, under my belt. And uh, my old teammate from the Mets, Tom Grieve, who's now the general manager, of the, who at then was the general manager of the Texas Rangers, called. And uh, the next thing you know, I was a Ranger. 
Go back for a second. Again, Timeless sort of such a, a great influence for you in your playing career. So you give him credit for for realizing, okay, this is the next step in my career. It's not going to be playing forever. Obviously, nobody can, but you know, coaching and managing, he kind of opened your eyes to that. Well, yeah, he he shocked me with reality. You know, like stop fooling yourself. You. You don't have balance and you don't have uh, speed and, you know, you're not going to be useful uh, at a major league level. So, you know, I, I stopped fooling myself from then on and I tried to fool other people and uh, the fooling stopped in uh, at the end of the 79 season. Matter of fact, the Mets released me in 78. So I was finished. There was two days left in spring training. The heavens opened up and somehow I got a spot in the Seattle Mariners, you probably have to read that chapter because it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, uh, chapters from your book, Valentine's Way. If you, I certainly recommend the book because we're just touching on some of these stories here. But let's start with the, the Rangers now. Again, uh, you start with your uh, managerial career. As you said, it uh, started in 1985, a full year in 1986. You finished second for the AL Manager of the Year. What was it like? What, what attracted you to that, and, and why did you – seem to to do such a great job obviously as a manager uh starting off your career with the rangers well it was familiarity with the guy who was hiring me tom grieve and i sat the bench as i mentioned with the new york mets and uh you know we we spent a lot of time together we went out to dinner together uh, i knew him he knew me he respected me as a person and me as a baseball guy and now he had an opportunity to hire his first manager and uh, he wanted it to me to be me, and I could think of nothing other I I'd rather do. Um, you know, the the situation was less than the best situation. You know, the the ballpark was a kind of converted double A field. Uh, the there was no fandom. The uh, the Texas uh, fans thought the Rangers rode horses and wore white hats with a badge, you know, and uh, we had to convince them that the Rangers were the other sport in town, other than football, of course. And um, it, it was a it was a tough go of it. But, uh, you know, there was a guy like Bobby Bragan, who was there, who's uh, a mentor and an elderly statesman, ex-manager, ex-dodger, um, who, who helped me along, a great guy named Mike Stone, who was the president of the team, and of course, Tom Greaves. So, we were going to just do everything we had to do, make it into a major league franchise, and and we succeeded. Yeah, you certainly did. And uh, you know, during that time, your your owner, your owner ran into some financial trouble, and here comes an ownership group led by George W. Bush, and he becomes uh, the the lead owner of that team. What was it like working for him and and reading some of the book? I know you mentioned that he's just a, a big baseball guy, and he just loved being around baseball. He loved being around baseball, and he, he was a good person. You know, he cared about uh, everyone individually, and he never wanted to interfere. He always had his workout at the stadium because I had the best shower uh, that there was. His offices were up the street a little ways, and he'd run around the track to get his jogging in, and he'd uh, take the shower in my office, and he'd always be there when I got there, and I got there, you know, a little afternoon. And uh, as soon as the first player showed up, he would leave because he never wanted to interfere and he never wanted to, you know, be divisive in any way, but he wanted to learn. 
and and he did. He learned about hitting and pitching and team building and and uh, organizations. And I think he would have been a great commission, commissioner of baseball if he stayed with baseball. Maybe he still could be here in in his latter years because um, his knowledge and his passion uh, were, were were a great combination. So you guys had a, had a great relationship, great working relationship during that time. Oh yeah, yeah. I was V. He was. Uh, you know, George or W and, um, you know, we did the lunches, we did the talks, we, uh, we did everything. And we also did the firing, you know, when it, when it came time for me to leave, I knew it was time for me to leave. I kind of, you know, I, I was at the point where I wanted to do one thing and the organization wanted to do another. And, um, um, when you get there, uh, you, you, you just have to part ways. Yeah, 1992, halfway through the season. Is, is it harder, though, during it, doing it during the season like that? Uh, was it harder on you, harder on the team? What was that like? Well, I had never been fired before, so it, I don't know if it was harder or softer, uh, but it, it, it was hard uh, at the time. You know, I, I, I had a commitment. I, I had a home. I, I knew everyone in town. I knew everyone in the organization. Uh, and I thought we had a chance of, of uh, taking the next step. But for a year and a half or so, we were we were stutter stepping, and uh, a, a change seemed to be needed. Yeah. So again, that's 1992. Eventually, you go to the Norfolk Tides, the the Mets organization, AAA affiliate. Uh, what led to that hiring, taking over at a place I'm sure you maybe you haven't spent time in before then, and now you're the manager of the Norfolk Tides. Yeah, you know, the, the, the year in between uh, the, the Rangers and the Tides, I worked for Jim Bowden in Cincinnati. First, I was going to be his advanced scout, and what I was going to do is develop my restaurant business because at the time I had five restaurants, and I thought I could have 100, and I was uh, in negotiations with the Marriott Hotel chain to put my restaurants in their lobby. So, you know, being an advanced scout was perfect. I had all the days free. All I had to do was go to a game and watch a game and report on it. My God, three hours a day for work and a report. I could do this. And and about uh, six weeks or not even into the season, um, Tony Perez, who was the manager, might have been three weeks in the season, gets fired. Jim Bowden hires Davey Johnson to be the manager, and Davey calls me and says, hey, I need you as the third base coach. So from having uh, the freedom to do what I wanted to do, uh, I packed up and, and went to Cincinnati and became a third base coach and learned a new organization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that wasn't my cup of tea. I didn't want to go backward and be a third base coach I wanted to manage and I put the word out that uh, you know I, I wanted to manage the Mets heard about it gave me a call and said well we have the AAA job offer uh, opening or are you interested I went down and met their owner Ken Young and their general manager Dave Rosenfeld who are terrific people uh, and I said now this could be a nice working relationship and uh, took on the job as, as the tides yeah, it certainly worked out. You had a second stint after you went to Japan, but that second stint with the ties eventually led you to the Mets, right? So for you, and I'm sure a lot of people recognize you from your time as a manager for the Mets. Is, is that where you think people, you know, connect you the most with your time as a manager for the Mets? Yeah, depending on what side of the, the Pacific Ocean you're on. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, you know, in Japan, they – know me as the Met of the, uh, of the Marines, and uh, 
here I think, yeah, you know, the TV commentating thing got a lot of notoriety because I was out there. You know, the mustache, of course, got a lot of notoriety because it's circulated over the decades. But for the most part, the Met manager, um, yeah, that's a tag. Yeah. Well, we, we got to talk about the mustache. You brought it up. <laughs> June 9th, 1999 versus Toronto. So you have Mike Piazza at the time. You, you get him in a trade. That was obviously a huge trade for, for you, for the organization as well. Godson of Tommy Lasorda. Um, and, and he gets, uh, was it a call that, that you didn't agree with and you get ejected because of that and, and, and you kind of snuck your way back in. Tell us about this story. Yeah, it was a real weird play, you know. It was a pitch out and a catcher's balk and a, a catcher's interference on the same play. Uh, it was really kind of weird. Pat Mahomes, by the way, on the mound. That's wow. right, Patrick's father, Pat Mahomes. So I called the pitch out with the runner going, which was the right call. But Mike stepped out of the box too soon. And you see the umpire there pointing the first base, meaning not only is he going to call catcher's balk and make the the runner go to second but he also called catcher's interference because the the batter threw his bat at the at the ball and hit mike's glove and so the batter was going to get first base i had never seen anything like that and right there i'm saying you know right before that i said uh, you know can i get thrown out for what i'm thinking and he said no and then i told him what i was thinking and um uh well yeah I was in the dug. I was in the clubhouse before you knew it. Yeah, but you weren't in there long. You you, you came back out. What what went into your disguise and, and coming back out there? Obviously, talking to you here, you're, you're a playful guy. You're a fun guy. And, and was that kind of going through your mind coming back out there just to have some fun with this? You know what's amazing is I just saw the replay, and I've been telling that story as Graybeck throwing the bat. He never threw the bat, and I don't know why he gave the uh, the batter first base uh should have been catches balk and the runner goes a second but why did he get the batter first base that was weird anyway uh, you know three days before this um three of my coaches were fired so the coaches who were in the dugout uh were not with me uh during spring training weren't with me during that season uh they really didn't know the the team and Oral Hershiser, who's standing there, who's supposed to be blocking the view of everyone, uh, you know, up on the top step. And no, no one will see you, Skip. Just stay here and you can manage. And Robin Ventura, who I had pinch run for, was up in, in the uh, clubhouse. They convinced me to go back down, wear a little disguise, and no one would ever know. And instead, I went back down, wore a little disguise, and everyone knew. Yeah. How was that received by the players? Oh, they loved it. You know, it, it was a bad time for the players. You know, we, as I said, we had a seven game losing streak. We dropped out of first place, catcher, uh, uh, catcher's balk, coaches fired, uh, manager thrown out of the game. It was like one of those, oh, damn, what's going on here? So I think they needed a little levity. And I went down and uh, saw frowns turn upside down in the smiles and uh, we won the game and uh you know we went on to live happily ever after yeah sometimes as a manager you've got to know how to push those buttons you certainly were push, pushing the right buttons there and and certainly did in 2000 uh 2000 year high mark in in your Mets time leading them to the NL championship leading them to the World Series unfortunately it didn't go your way against the Yankees but what was that season like for you to to have that 
in New York, not with the Yankees, a team that you grew up rooting for, but, you know, to do that in New York, close to home for you? Oh, it was spectacular. I mean, the, the you know, 97 was good. 98 was better. 99, we made the playoffs, went to game six of the playoffs, and now it's 2000. So the bar kept being raised. And uh, with it came the excitement, the enthusiasm of fandom, and uh, it, it was really cool. I mean, people were becoming Met fans. People were going back to being Met fans. Uh, it was all it was all happening in a wonderful way. Uh, my only problem was I was I was playing in the last year of my contract, and I had the edict from the owner that the only way to get another contract is if we made the playoffs. So there was a little something going on there personally. Um, but um, it all worked out for, for the better, and uh, we made the playoffs. We dethroned uh, uh, the Atlanta Braves, who, who people have to remember. When I mentioned 70, 96, 97, 98, 99, the Braves were winning every one of those years, and they were spectacular. Uh, and we weren't that kind of organization yet. We were trying to be, uh, but it, it, was, it was a tough road to hoe, that's for sure. So you, you take a team to the World Series. Unfortunately, it doesn't go your way. But, uh, you know, do you look back at that that run fondly or, or do you look back and think more of the losses than of the wins that got you to that point? Uh, when I look at back at that team, those guys, that the happening, it was very fun. Um, you know, when I hear some of the ways other people have looked at it. Oh, well, you didn't win the whole thing. Uh, it kind of bothers me a little because they don't understand what it's like to be the second best team or even to get to that World Series and, and to play a team. You know, played the Yankees. They have won 14 straight World Series games. You know, we're going we're playing the Yankees in New York, where the mayor of our city is wearing a Yankee uh, jacket. You know, where where no one wanted us to beat the Yankees other than the Met fans, and that's Fred Wilpon there, uh, a little discouraged because Armando's on the mound and he's a great pitcher and he saved like 42 games straight. Uh, during that year, and yet he became something other than a great pitcher because, you know, Paul O'Neill had a spectacular nine-pitch at bat, and I guess Jose Vizcaino or maybe Ozzie Guillen, or uh, I forget who it was that, that actually hit a little ground ball uh, between uh, first and second to drive in a run. So, um, you know, it, it was all kind of – uh, regretful that guys like that, Armando Benitez, Todd Pratt, um, you know, Johnny Franco, uh, guys who are true blue Met guys, Benny Agbayani, uh, you know, that these guys couldn't get that ultimate uh, uh, goal. Um, but they got a National League championship ring, and uh, I hope they treasure it. Yeah, certainly a, a great accomplishment there in itself, as you said. Uh, eventually, your time there ends, and eventually you go back to Japan, and a, and a better second time in Japan than, than the first time. Uh, why go back there? Why why back to Japan? And, and again, obviously, it worked out well for you winning a championship. Well, you know, I committed to going there the first time, and I left kind of haphazardly, thinking I was going to be the manager of the Mets, which was 
kind of weird uh, to 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 do that. But you know, to have that opportunity to manage the Mets, I decided to leave. It didn't happen immediately. It happened a year later. Uh, but coincidentally, and I don't believe in coincidences, uh, I was eating lunch at the uh, at the hotel Four Seasons Hotel in New York City uh, with a wealthy friend of mine who was buying lunch. And at the end of lunch, a guy came over and tapped me on the shoulder. I turned around. It happened to be the owner of the Japanese team that I left 10 years prior. And uh, he said, I read the paper. Sorry, you uh, you got fired, but would you come back and work for me again? And we shook hands at that time. And I got a, on a plane and uh, became his manager for six years and had a glorious time uh, a, 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 across the Pacific. Yeah, 2005, again, won that uh, Japan series. And then it was uh, in TV, as you said, with ESPN. You were on the, what, Sunday Night Baseball there for a while, a short stint with the with the Red Sox. And, and then you decide to kind of leave baseball behind and, and you become the, the athletic director at Sacred Heart. What l- went into that decision, leaving behind a sport that you had been and, and been with you for, for so long, so many years, and, and try something different? Well, it was just that, you know, that, uh, you know, I was getting older and uh, I've done a lot of things in baseball. I I went from the bottom to the top and I knew it kind of inside out. And, you know, a president of the university called and said, hey, would you give this a shot? And I said, uh, I, I don't know if I could spell AD uh, regarding, you know, never mind uh, run a department. And he says, well, why don't you try it? And you know, eight years later, and a thousand athletes and a hundred coaches uh, who all uh, grew with me for eight years and are better today than they were then, um, uh, uh, gave me a great experience. And now I'm a free agent again, still working at Sacred Heart University, but I'm going to work with a major league team more than likely uh, not on the field because, again, those nighttime jobs aren't part of my curriculum these days. Um, but um, I, I'm going to probably be in a senior advisor role, being I'm a, I'm a senior and I like to give advice. And, um, you know, I'll do all the other things that I'm doing, trying to wind down things that I've done over the years from the restaurant, my academy and my film company and the, and, and the things that I spend time with. Uh, you know, maybe I'll pass the baton and see if I enjoy this retirement thing. Yeah, I don't know if retirement's ever going to be uh, a ah. word that you that you use on a regular basis. Uh, one other thing I want to touch on here: you, you ran for mayor for from your hometown, Stanford, Connecticut. Unfortunately, you didn't win. Uh, but what led to that, and and what was that experience like? And could we see you, you know, look at the political realm in, in the future again? You worked for George W. Bush. You have a great sounding board, maybe for someone to talk to when it comes to politics. Well, I've been asked about other runs, um, but I did seven months here in my hometown. It was it was a learning experience. You know, we lost by hundreds of votes, uh, you know, in a very Democratic town. I run ran unaffiliated and I I just didn't like the environment. You know, I wanted to get people to switch their thinking from from the other side is something you hate. to the other side is something you work with. You know, I didn't think that uh, a city of Stanford, Connecticut, 135,000 people needed to be involved with the national politics of so, and that city governance could be done differently. Um, a lot of people 
got wind of the situation and kind of jumped on the bandwagon, but I needed 15,000 and I got 14,000 something. And that's more votes than any other non-Democrat ever got in our town. So it was a good run. Yeah, and before that, you were a citizen of the year in Stanford. You were the director of public safety. So you had some experience with, with the city there as well. Um, as we you started here, you know, we talked about, you know, the lockouts going on right now. Um, what's your thoughts of the, the state of the game? You know, once that lockout is over, hopefully it ends soon and, and we get back to baseball. Uh, and you said you want to get back involved as well as a, an advisor. Uh, your thoughts on the, the state of the game and, and, and where this game needs to go to continue to improve, continue to obviously get the fans and the fan support for baseball? Well, you know, it's a labor dispute. I, it will be solved and we will have baseball, in my opinion. Um, what I'm hoping comes out of this is not only a new CBA, but I'm hoping some um, some new leadership can come out of this. I hope that there could be uh, maybe even a bond between uh, those two sides of ownership and players uh, so that the agents who often become uh, such a distraction and so much friction between the two sides uh, are put in the background and that some leadership from that uh, player side and leadership from the owner side can move our game uh, forward in a positive way. And uh, I think we need positive movement. Um, I, I think we have to stop, you know, shooting ourselves in the foot. We have to stop, you know, telling everybody about how terrible our game is and start telling people how wonderful it is and exhibiting it for the fans um, during their three-hour stretch when they're watching our great game play. Yeah, it is a great game. It's it's done well for you, obviously, in your career. Valentine's Way, My Adventurous Life and Times, a book that's out now. Uh, certainly can get that on Amazon, other places as well. How, how else can people follow you if they want to follow you? Are, are you on social media? Do you do that? Oh, I'm all over social, but I'm not there as regularly as uh, I'd like to be. You know, again, I'm, I, I do all this other stuff, but, uh, you know, at Bobby Valentine is, is out there. And, uh, you know, uh, I could be reached just by going over to my restaurant or going over to this is my sports academy, going into my sports academy. I'm. I'm around often. There's no doubt about that. And uh, uh, my email is the same as it was in 93 and my phone's the same as it was in uh, 96. So uh, I'm easy to reach. Well, uh, this has been uh, very enjoyable. Great stories. Again, we just touched on some of the stories here. If you want to hear more about them, Valentine's Way in bookstores now on line as well my adventurous life and times and certainly it has from from ballroom dancing all the way now to uh you know a run for the mayor and everything else that you're doing bobby valentine i can't thank you enough for for sharing some of those tales and those stories with us here today well great job uh, asking the questions i appreciate you giving me the time continued success take care bro all right thank you bobby well, again, my thanks to Bobby Valentine spending some time with us and sharing such great stories. Who knew ballroom dancing was a sport and such a big part of Bobby's life growing up? Our thanks to The Athletic and MLB Vault, some of the highlights that you saw there. If you enjoyed this one, enjoyed previous episodes, be sure to subscribe, like these as well. We'll have more great guests coming up. But again, great sitting down and chatting with Bobby Valentine here today. We'll see you next time. Another edition of In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day, everybody.